This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we go and see something new in cinemas and then go and watch a bunch of older movies that are connected either by genre, by actor, by filmmaker. And with any luck, perhaps you, the good listener, will have a sense of some movies that you didn't know before. And we get to watch movies we've always wanted to watch. So we feel good about that. It's a (laughs) win-win. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer here in Halifax. I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts writer here in Halifax for the Chronicle Herald. Today, we are going to revisit the filmography of the wonderful and frequently working Julianne Moore, uh, and we're going to talk about her most recent film in cinemas, Gloria Bell. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Well, it really is a pleasure to uh, go through the filmography, the seemingly bottomless filmography of one of our favorite actors, and that is uh, Julianne Moore, who has been working steadily since, uh, I guess, since the early 90s, pretty much. In um, film. Yeah, before that, she was a soap opera actor. Uh, you know, trained in Boston, uh, worked on the stage, got a, a steady gig on a soap opera, which for a, an aspiring actor is kind of hard to turn down. Steady work is always a good thing. Uh, but is one of the rare actors that uh, that made the leap to uh, more um, prestigious projects, uh, the big screen, and and, uh, and and not just movies, but uh, some critically acclaimed movies that are some of the best films uh, of our lifetime. So uh, not too shabby, not too shabby at all. And uh, we're we're quite fond of of, of Moore's work and the, the breadth of her filmography. Of course, not everyone's a winner. Not when you uh, make that many films; they're not all going to uh, hit the bullseye. But uh, Often she's the best thing in a not great movie. <laughs> uh, that's that's usually about as bad as it gets. And uh, often she's uh, in a project where everything is firing in all cylinders, and uh, she's a wonderful part of uh, of the reasons for why those films work. Um, you know, and occasionally she takes on smaller parts. You know, maybe working with a director that she's worked with before and takes on a role that may not be as prestigious or have as much screen time, but of course uh, she brings something special to it pretty much every time she's in a film. Yeah, I love it that she is she's seemingly egoless in terms of if if, it's, if the part's of interest to her, she'll do it. And I, and I, I like that she's a, she'll be in a lead role in one film and then be, uh, you know, six or seven from the call sheet on the next one. And uh, I, I really like that uh, she does work with filmmakers uh, more than once. And I, and I also like that she will choose these 
really terrific independent roles, but also will do many films for Hollywood. I mean, she she was in you know she was in Lost World, Jurassic Park. Uh, she took on the 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 second role of the second person to take on Clarice Starling in Hannibal after Jodie Foster, of course, won an Oscar for it. So that must have been a pretty challenging thing to do. Oh yeah, I'm, we're going to make a sequel to Silence of the Lambs, and and I'm going <laughs> to yes. be Clarice. I mean, that's that's intense, and and uh, you know, I, although the film I didn't love, I thought she. She did a she did a solid job. Uh, she even showed up, but in two of the Hunger Games movies. So she's certainly someone who has has no problem taking roles in Hollywood. But the the films that we I think recognize her for, where she does her, does her best work, are you know when she works with Altman or um, Todd Haynes, you know, where she is is prominent in an ensemble or in the lead uh, of a, of a great art house or independent film. And that's what she's done through her whole career. Yeah. I, I get the, I get the feeling that she is a very collaborative, uh, you know, artist, uh, as, as a performer, uh, you know, the directors often, you know, work with her multiple times and, and, uh, there's certain actors that she often uh, works with uh, on more than one occasion. And, uh, you know, that, that probably comes from the stage background where, you you know, you really are all in it together. And, of course, we see that in, uh, in one of the films we'll be talking about later in the show, Uncle Vanya, which is a very theatrical film, uh, but it couldn't – it's not the sort of thing that could actually happen on a stage. So yeah, well, it's, 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 you know, obviously based on a play, and, but is expanded in a very unique way by one of the great masters, uh, Louis Mal. Mm, yeah, and uh, it was, I guess, a workshop that was going on and on in, in New York uh, and became, yes, Vanya on 42nd Street. Uh, but she is incredible in the film. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. We should talk about Gloria Bell first. For, for right? sure. Let, let's talk about <laughs> Gloria Bell. Now, we've uh, seen it in the theater recently. Uh, by the time you hear this, well, not by the time you hear this, but as we're recording this, uh, of course, it has just left the theater. Um, so you won't be able to see it on a big screen, I don't think, uh, when this is airing. So it's, it's, still, it's still a fairly fresh movie. It didn't have a terribly long run. Um, but... Um, it uh, you know it's it's obviously you know going to turn up on the other platforms and so on, and it's not a film that necessarily suffers from the transition to a smaller screen. But it, it's uh, it's director um, Sebastian Lilio uh, remaking his film Gloria, the uh, South American director who's uh, remaking his film about a, a woman uh, who's uh, in her fifties, uh, not that recently divorced, but certainly uh, you know she's she's single, she's feeling somewhat uh, distant from her, her two adult children. Um, her ex-husband seems to have settled into another comfortable marriage, and she's kind of on her own, and she's kind of, you know, out there looking for love. The, the film has some some undertones of uh, looking for Mr. Goodbar, the, the Diane Keaton, although it doesn't, it's not as dark as that, um, but, you know, the Diane Keaton film from the 70s about a woman on the, on the single scene and the disco bars and so on. And, and I feel like we're seeing maybe that a version of that character, but now, you know, aged, uh, you know, 25 years or, or so. And, and uh, you know, there is this the kind of melancholy wistfulness to the character uh, that, uh, that Moore brings, this incredible vulnerability that you don't doubt for a second. And that's, that's kind of her stock and trade. That's something that she can bring to any role. I mean, she, she plays other characters that maybe don't fit into that mold, but that seems to be something that, that really is in her wheelhouse in a big way. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, she is she is someone she's drawn to characters who have have are on the ragged edge or or somehow damaged by their life experience and and I mean I think in in some ways though this is the a very hopeful role. Gloria Bell is a character who is very she's stalwart. She's been through some stuff. She's had had a, a you know rough time of it, but she's she's lived a life like she has had two kids who are grown up adults now. She's got this. Uh, she doesn't really have a much of a relationship with her ex husband, but she's interested in in moving forward with her life. And she meets a man here played by. John Turturro, who is also terrific, yes. and uh, and you know he seems to be really into her, and you know it looks really promising. But he is he keeps her kind of at arm's length, and and that is the um, uh, you know, and that's the kind of the struggle for her. The tension there is like she really likes him, and she invites starts inviting him to her her sort of meet her friends and her family, and uh, and then it gets a little complicated. Now, this was a film uh, that I made a point of watching the original. Before I watch the new one, and the and if you're in Halifax, listening to this, Halifax Libraries has a copy of Gloria, which is the name of the 2013 film that Sebastian Lilo also directed. And uh, you know, there is we could do a, a whole episode on the brief history of international filmmakers who yes. remake their earlier work when they get discovered by Hollywood and turn films from other languages usually into uh, English. And usually, it really doesn't work so well. I mean. Uh, does anyone prefer the second version of The Man Who Knew Too Much over <laughs> Hitchcock's original? Does anyone prefer the second version of The Vanishing, uh, the original from 1988, which apparently, you know, is terrifying, where the English language remake from 1993 is largely considered kind of a disaster? Um, Michael Haneke's Funny Games from 1998 wasn't beloved, but it got not much more love when it was turned into English like 10 years later. This one, I think, kind of breaks that pattern. I, I would say that... I don't think it's a superior film to the original, but it is as good. And what it has going for it, uh, and with no disrespect to the original actor, who's also amazing in the role, but Julianne Moore lives it in a way that feels even more personal, I think, than the original. And I think that Lilio spends even more time with his camera on her face than he did with his lead from the original film. And uh, it just... It just feels so intimate and and so lovely and in some places so funny that uh, that you can't help but feel engaged uh, by the by the character and uh, yeah it's a it's a really charming film and I think you know uh, whenever it arrives on another platform I hope that if people even if you haven't if you've seen the original or you haven't whichever I think people should seek it out um, I should say also Sebastian Lilo his recent films um, Disobedience. Uh, about uh, set in the uh, London um, uh, Jewish community, starring Rachel Weisz and Rachel McAdams, is terrific. That was from last year. I think it's on on Netflix. And then uh, a Fantastic Woman, which I think might also be on Netflix. Those are his last two films. This guy is a super talented uh, a director. And, oh, a uh, Fantastic Woman was amazing. Yeah, uh, that, yeah, that was definitely a favorite film of that year for sure. So yeah, Gloria Bell, seek it out whenever it arrives uh, on on those platforms. Yeah, J- Julian Moore is, it, and it is. It you know I went to see this thinking it was going to be kind of a romantic drama uh, about a woman looking for love in, in, you know, in her 50s. And, uh, and it's certainly that is the framework of it. Uh, you know, she works at an insurance company. She's, so she's got this kind of day job that she can do that she's not terribly connected with but doesn't seem to make any great demands on her. And so she you know, has time to go out at night and, and go to the, the disco bars that play old tunes and seemingly populated by like, I don't think these places exist in Halifax necessarily, <laughs> but, but you know, where, you know, basically, you know, older divorced adults go and hang out and 
dance to old tunes and you know make connections. And they, they might exist. We just aren't in that scene. We just not in that scene. Well, it used to be Cheers, I guess, was yeah. kind of the kind of place that was in that realm. But um, you know, uh, it's you know, it's this environment where you know it just seems like a lonely place to be. You know, these looking these older men who are somewhat kind of have this predatory air about them as single men often do when they're you know maybe maybe they're they're probably not looking for a long-term connection or something like that but but you know she feels like something's missing in her life but uh so that sounds very melancholy and gloomy but in fact it is quite funny like the scenes of her they often cut to scenes of her driving driving to work or driving somewhere in her car and she's listening to like hits of the 70s yeah am hits you know, of the 70s so <laughs> the, you know she's listening to a lot of olivia newton john and air supply and little river band i think i'm trying to think of all the songs all weirdly mostly australian <laughs> kind of things. I think maybe some ABBA's in there somewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, and she plays it completely straight, but somehow it's, it's, it wins. It's very winning. It's, it's, it's very, it is funny in its own way. And then of course, you know, this, this wonderful and yet very odd man played by John Turturro, who, you know, has this kind of double life. And it's, you know, to say more about it's, it's, unfortunately we can't say more about his character. Um, cause it, it, everything seems so right. And yet it's also wrong. And, uh, it's, it's, it's funny and heartbreaking at the same time. And it's, it's such a, it's such a tough balance. And yet this film pulls it off, uh, so marvelously. Yeah. And I, I would say if there was something about the film that, that disappointed me a little bit, and I can't help, but cast my memory back to the, watching the original is that, uh, the new film is a little briefer than the original, even though in some ways it's a shot-by-shot remake. Um, there are some supporting characters or some other sort of uh, interstitial stuff that happens in the original that doesn't happen in this one. One thing that I will say as well is that uh, Gloria's character is slightly less promiscuous in this version than she is in the original film. And I, I was a little disappointed in that. I mean, you know, okay, so it's there might be some changes made for a, for a North American English-speaking audience uh, that, uh, that in a Hispanic culture like in Chile might uh, be more accepting of. And I felt like you were talking about how how the 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 nightclub scene seemed a little bit sad and lonely and and it's funny because in the uh, in in the Spanish language version of the film I didn't feel that I felt like there's something about uh, Latino culture uh, that felt like these are really lively mm. uh, life affirming kind of scenes of dancing and these people even though it doesn't matter what their age they're all just having a great time together and maybe in North America somehow that doesn't. Uh, doesn't translate in the same way. Yeah, in the in the in the dance club scenes, like everybody's dance, the people are dancing with each other, but they're not. They're looking around the room. At, you know, they're they're not making eye contact. They're kind of, you know, looking to see, you know, wh- what they're going to move on to next, or what the next prospect might be, or whatever. Until until she kind of until Tuturo kind of locks eyes on her, and that's and that's when every the dynamic uh, completely changes. I, I think maybe you're supposed to infer that if she's going out to the this. I guess singles or divorcee bar, whatever you want to call it every night or, you know, most nights that chances are she probably is having a few one night stands or whatever, but yeah, they don't make it uh, blatantly obvious, mm-hmm. but it, it's like if she's going out and drinking and, and, and dancing, there's, there's probably some pickups somewhere along the way, but yeah, you're, you're right. They don't show it uh, uh, so obviously maybe either to move the story along or maybe to, because they're worried that a North American audience might find that unsympathetic. Yeah, because of yeah course that is unfortunate. They're but, so Puritan uh, these days. Yes, <laughs> in yeah. Country, in this country, in this continent. 
I will say that I really like the fact that both films aren't shy about showing people having sex who happen to be in their 50s. Like, that's not something we see every day. So nudity, uh, bodies of people who are, are older. And, uh, and I like that it was, it was pretty upfront about that, you know? I, I appreciate that there were some boundary-breaking in, in both of the films in that case. I, I have to say, Jordana and I watched The End of the Affair this morning, which we'll talk about in another segment, but, but, but she's like, oh, it's another Julianne Moore film where she's naked and having sex. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she didn't even see Chloe or Shortcuts with me, so. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I guess, I guess we can chalk that up to fearlessness. It doesn't, it, I mean, you know, I always wonder what goes through an actor's mind when they, when they have a role that requires that sort of thing. And, uh, she seems pretty fearless about it. And, but, you know, whenever it happens in one of her films, there, you know, there's a reason it's, it's not gratuitous. And, uh, you know, either to, to show intimacy or vulnerability or whatever, there, there's a point to it. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I, genuinely have trouble talking about it because it you know often it is exploitative yeah and, fair enough and just a way to sell tickets but but some stories require it and in, in this one you, you really had to show the connection between her and the Turturro character before everything goes to hell in a handbasket so um that you know that there is a genuine physical intimacy there um especially with a guy who's uh sort of afraid of it for physical reasons that you know are revealed uh later in the film so and that's probably all I should say about that. It's funny that you know it's 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 a romantic, dramatic comedy, but yet it does have kind of a twist, and and there is there is a little suspense, and and you know the questions that have to be answered by the end of the film and that kind of thing. So uh, I think that's a part of why the film works so well, and that it it it's not just a standard, straight ahead romantic uh, plot. That there that the, there are there is a bit of a mystery going on as well. Not you know not a murder or crime mystery, but certainly. You know, trying to figure out a character's motivations uh, over the course of the film uh, is, is makes it, you know, certainly in, keeps you watching and keeps you guessing. So, as we mentioned, Julianne Moore got her start in uh, smaller roles in soap operas. Um, in the early 90s, she was pretty prominent in a number of smaller parts, uh, early f films like The Hand That Rocks the Cradle <laughs> and uh, Benny and June, which some people will remember. I'm sure that's a uh, was a very popular 90s film with uh, Johnny Depp and, um, and The Fugitive. Uh, those things got her noticed, but it was three movies in the mid-90s that really established her career as a uh, an up-and-coming, a uh, hot property in Hollywood, and those were Shortcuts, Vanya on 42nd Street, and Safe. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we watched these films. Shortcuts is Robert Altman's sprawling epic of Raymond Carver stories. It, it you know, Altman had had a return to favor in terms of his, uh, his career with the player, and this is what he followed it up with, and it's kind of the perfect match of filmmaker and material. Um, it's set in suburban Los Angeles, tells the stories of multiple overlapping characters, largely human tragedy, small and large, with maybe the exception of Tom Waits and Lily Tomlin's Earl and Doreen story. But even mm -hmm. then, it's not without its troubles. The casting here is terrific. Lily Taylor plays Lily Tomlin's daughter, which I, makes complete sense to me. I, you know, if, if someone hadn't told me they weren't related, I, 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 I would have been maybe, uh, I would have been maybe surprised. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, but there's a lot of unhappy marriages, there's a lot of infidelity, there's a lot of anger, and there's even a uh, serial killer uh, subplot here. Uh, 
uh, three guys who go fishing discover the body of a young woman in a river but choose not to do anything about it except take photos, eventually reporting the body after they'd had their good time. That's that's a lot. That's one of those like really those stories that really makes you sick to your stomach. Um, but there is so much going on here. Some of it is really hard to watch in more than three hours to get through all of it. Um, maybe I, I didn't really find that all of it resonated equally with me. I was there were some of the stories I wasn't engaged as engaged by, but I did find that Julianne Moore's story. She plays a painter married to sort of a controlling doctor played by Matthew Modine as their relationship is fracturing. And their story is hinged by a famous, a now famous scene where uh, they're expecting company at their home and they're arguing about her relationship with another painter that she had a tryst with. And she spills wine on her pants. So she takes them off to clean them. And then they have an argument together while she's not wearing anything. She's totally bottomless. And uh, it's uh, it's remarkable in its intimacy without was also being very funny. And that, I think, was one of those moments where it showed her as a performer of real courage that not a lot of other actors would have, I think. And it's funny. When we were talking about Gloria Bell, there's a scene in a hotel room where she takes her pants off. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she's. Just doing it like it just felt like almost a callback to shortcuts, but you don't actually, uh, you know, the camera doesn't t- uh, see as much in that as as it did in this earlier fil- film. But boy, I mean, you know, not to draw too much attention to to you know these 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 kinds of scenes, but it's hard not to be stunned by the fact that she's she's arguing. And and walking around without any pants, and he draws attention to it as well. You're not wearing any pants. <laughs> anyway, it's a crazy scene. It's a crazy scene, and it's uh, yeah, it's hard not to dwell on it. But I don't want to dwell on it. But however, <laughs> it, it it is interesting how it totally throws her husband off guard and off balance uh, in the course of this argument, and uh, and it's and it's it's completely un- on her part. It's completely unconscious doing it. She just has to get this wine stain out of her pants. But but uh, you know it it just uh, says a lot about their relationship dynamic in one mm-hmm. simple kind of visual thing. And and, uh, and uh, you know Matthew Modine is an actor I, I tend to find unpleasant at the best of times. He's not one of my favorite screen presences, but he's playing kind of you know he's playing an a hole here. So I guess it works. Um, you know, I, but most most often than not, I, I don't enjoy him in the picture. But sometimes, you know, he's good if he's playing a, a character you're kind of not supposed to find uh, likable or whatever. Or, you know, the, so some, I guess he can work in that context. But, um, you know, here it's, it's perfect. He's just, yeah, he's, he's just trying to control her life and she's kind of a free spirit and, you know, Occasionally dresses up as a clown with her, you know, her her sister who is like a professional kids party clown, right? Yeah, which, Ann Archer, uh, which has uh, provides some some fun moments, um, and uh, it, but but throughout the film, you know, she's she's got she's got this creative impulse to paint and and uh, it's you know her her artwork isn't great. <laughs> it's you know it, it, it's it's like well she at least her husband's like a doctor. Um, but uh, you know she does have this kind of expressive urge, and and, and she sticks with it. So it, you know it's it's a character that that has some some uh, positive things and some negative things, and uh, you know ultimately she's she's very likable in the role. But it, it's a pretty complex character and a whole uh, a whole 
swamp of complex yes, characters, yes. And, and she certainly stands out among them. Which you know, considering that in that that two year span that those three films came out, Shortcuts, Vanya on Forty Second, and and Safe, you know, that, that that's, that's like a that's kind of like a, a home run of, of films right there, and. Uh, and being able to stand out in this kind of cast with this these kinds of personalities is is no mean feat for an actor who's kind of even though she she had a fair bit of experience up to this point you know was certainly not the screen presence uh, that she would become yeah no absolutely and man watching shortcuts again boy it is bleak in places yes uh, there were things about it I really like seeing again a lot of it is in actors we don't see as much anymore the Madeline Stowe's or even Tim Robbins we don't see in film very often these days and uh, it's great to see them you know at the peak of their powers um, and uh, you know Fred Ward I mean there's a lot to enjoy in this but the stories are so in places are so grim uh, Jennifer Jason Lee I mean who I think made a career, especially in the 80s and 90s, playing really damaged characters in some ways. She's... it's it's yeah it's hard to watch some of those those segments, but but at the same time so compelling and um, oh and I'd forgotten about the uh, Andy McDowell uh, uh, subplot with the the parents whose son is in the hospital and the uh, and they they're you know beset by this angry cake maker. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, anyway, all of which to say, shortcuts is very much worth seeing again. But uh, I also noticed how weird the lighting was, and maybe this was an Altman thing, or maybe it was a '90s thing. But the light, there's a lot of sort of wide angle shots, even in interiors where you're seeing the whole set and characters sort of walking in and out of shot, and they're all lit like they're on a almost like on a TV set. It's uh, like a like a, a sitcom uh, set, and I, I found that to be. A little odd, but uh, but you know that's that's you know twenty five years down the road. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm guessing that it probably has to be because there is an improvisational nature to his films, and you may not necessarily know where the camera is going to go at mm-hmm. any given time. And in in order to to do that, you you kind of need a, a an evenly lit set in case you know you you know the the, the Altman's never been about like these careful. Uh, Compositions and these carefully constructed kind of—it's—it's it's, it's more the spur of the moment. I mean, that's you know there there are scenes. I think, as soon as I say that, I can think of a scenes in Mash and and McCabe and Mrs. Miller that actually are fairly carefully composed. But but this film feels fairly loose and and you know kind of frayed around the edges, uh, you know, in a way that only he can kind of pull off. And uh, I'm guessing that's you know that. As far as cinematography is kind of not the main concern uh, for a film like this, especially you know as the characters kind of bump in and out of scenes and and interact with each other, and it's it's just watching it and feel seeing how all the threads kind of weave together is, is one of the joys of this film. That, you know that this character, you know, runs into this character while they're on their way to meet that character, and then one of the guys from the fishing trip is getting some photos developed and meets some other characters at the photo booth. Yes, and, and uh, you know their photos get mixed up with the kind of horrifying results <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, just the, the sort of the billiard table nature of this film as things, characters careen off one another is, is pretty amazing. And to watch it again after, uh, after having not seen it in a few years, it, it's still remarkable to watch how, because it, you know, there's so much going on. It's so layered that you kind of forget everything that happens. Oh, that character actually meets that character while they're on their way to yeah. do this. And, and, and uh, that, that's really, uh, it, it's really a, a pleasure to watch it, but it, you know, there there are some some jaw clenching moments uh, over the course of the film because some of these characters go through some some real tough stuff, and uh, you know, and that's but that's the, that's the nature of Raymond Carver. His short stories are 
are, are truly wonderful if you haven't had a chance to read them. Uh, just, you know, one of my favorite stories is about a vacuum cleaner salesman and, uh, and it's, you know, about his kind of day-to-day thing. And then at one point in this movie, a vacuum cleaner salesman shows up in the middle of one scene, um, just as kind of background more or less. But I thought, oh, that's got to be a nice nod to that particular story, which, right. would, which wouldn't have really fit in to this framework, but at least they somehow wedged a nod to that story in there. So, you know, they're definitely cramming, uh, yeah, you know, a lot into shortcuts, and uh, I think it's you know a richly rewarding watch, and it I, you know it feels like it really hasn't aged all that much at all. Now, there's a lot of people on phones, but they're all like landlines. Yeah, land, and and pay phones and the photo booth. You know, <laughs> there's, right. there, there are elements of the past that uh, that kind of stand out, but for the most part, I find it it works pretty well, and uh, you know, and and there are some things. It's it's kind of jarring to see Robert Downey Jr. at the kind of Career, the start of his kind of career recovery mode, I guess. Yeah. Um, or maybe maybe he wasn't in career. I can't remember exactly when he kind of picked himself up and dusted himself off. But this is certainly, you know. This is pre-prison, but, uh, right. but he was still trying to establish, I think, a leading man career. Yeah. Around, around this time, he did do Chaplin. So that was probably his biggest break at the time. Yeah. I th- and here, he, it's kind of, it's more of a minor. I mean, they're all kind of supporting roles in a way. Uh, there's no, like, one lead but uh, but his character is sort of a second tier character, uh, basically Chris Penn's kind of dopey best friend kind of thing, and yeah. um, uh, which is interesting to watch him do because it's it's a it's a slightly different version of the kind of the glib Robert Downey Jr. character that we're used to seeing these days. Yeah, I think sleazy might be the word I used to describe his character. <laughs> yes, yeah, so well, he's definitely they're both fairly sleazy. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of the order that these films go in. Well, Vanya, th- is, Vanya came is, next. Vanya came next in 94. Uh, the adaptation, as you mentioned, of Uncle Vanya, done in a dilapidated theater in New York City, directed by Louis Mal, the great Louis Mal. And it documents the workshop run by Andre Gregory, who's in the film, who plays the director, featuring more Wallace Shawn and stalwart character actors like Larry Pine, Brooke Smith, uh, George Gaines, Jerry Mayer, and Phoebe Brand. Now, I am not a Chekhov fan necessarily. I, 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 in my might be more in the mind of Withnal, always full of women <laughs> staring out of windows, whining about ducks going to Moscow. But uh, there is something about the way this film works. And a lot of the magic starts right away when they walk into the theater. They're talking about their lives. How are you doing? Oh, I'm tired. I didn't sleep well last night. Oh, you know, I've got this happening and this audition. And then suddenly you're in the play. They just, there is almost no segue um, Uncle Vanya, uh, while Sean plays Vanya at one point just lies down on a bench and then suddenly we're in the play and we're in scenes and we're getting to know the characters and, you know, uh, Chekhov, there's a lot of talking about people being unhappy and why they're unhappy and uh, and then you jump out and Gregory is like, let's take a break and then they're all talking <laughs> around the craft service table and then they're back in the play again. It's it's really delightful the way that's done. I really loved that, that uh, sort of stealth uh, way that they get us into the story. Um, now, Moore is uh, not the youngest character, I don't think, here. That's probably Brooke Smith. Yes. That's, yeah, Brooke Smith is like the, the daughter of of uh, the professor's first wife. That's right. Away. Yes. And but, Julianne uh, Moore is the second wife. Yeah, second wife. But she's Moore is so glamorous in this, this role and beautiful, and everyone's talking about her beauty. So, you know, that becomes kind of almost like a, um, a, a this very... S- 
upfront character element. You know, it 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 um, it's something. It's like a proprietary thing that she has going on, as she's either rebelling against or using in her favors to sort of manipulate. She she's not a character actually has that much power. She's but neither does anybody. Everyone's feeling under the weight of the professor character, and uh, and they all are doing what they're doing for her. And you know, overall, I think the story is a little bit about academia versus working class. It's about you know um, this feeling how in in society there's this cl- it's a, it's a class struggle story, um, but uh, yeah she just her chops as a dramatic actor in this are just a plus and she matches she meets the challenge of all these other experienced actors around her in a way that uh, everyone in this is really good so it was fun to see it again well I mean you know she was a trained stage actor first and I I I get the feeling that this film is probably the one where you get the strongest impression of what it would be like to see her in a stage production where, where things are maybe a little bigger, a little more accented to, you know, to reach the back of the house or whatever. I mean, they are theatrical performances that we, we get in this film. But I, when I say that, I don't mean that they're hammy or, or, you know, that they're over emoting or anything like that, but they're, they're, they're a little more outsized maybe than they would be in a straight ahead film drama. And, and, but that's why the film works because of course we're, we're the background is the dilapidated theater. So there are no real sets. There are no real props. Uh, they're just wearing their, their street clothes pretty much. Um, you know, there's, there's a few little, you know, things here and there, you know, a flower that, uh, that's uh, required for one scene, that kind of thing. But it's all, it's all, you know, there isn't a lot of fiddling about, you know, it's just getting down to the, Brass tacks of exploring these characters and telling this story uh, with a, with a minimal bit of fuss, really, but 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 a lot maximum emotion, and 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 she's terrific as this woman who who you know I think every man in the play hits on her or professes yeah. their love for her or you almost know, every man, tr- yeah. tries to win her over to their side and uh, and and so she's kind of the nexus of of the whole thing, even though it's called Uncle Vanya and and Wallace Shawn is as the actor playing Uncle Vanya, um, you know, has has the most to lose, pretty much. Uh, I'm guessing is is why he's the the main character. This could have been called any number of things, but but he's the one that um, bears the biggest brunt of the professor's kind of, uh, you know, just his indifference to the rest of his family, um, and uh, you know, as, as the brother of his now late first wife you know how much how much parlay does he really have with this guy and it turns out not a lot um and while you know wallace sean is so funny and yet you know at one moment and then just completely heartbreaking the next when you realize that he's you know gonna be kicked out into the snow of (laughs) of a cold russian winter or whatever you know when if the professor makes good on his plan to sell this estate that he's been you know, basically running for the last, the, the Vanya has been running for the last 25 years. So it's, it's, you know, and that, that's the beauty of Chekhov. There, there's humor there if you're willing to look for it, um, you know, amidst all the crushing Russian tragedy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I think this, this, uh, this presentation of it, uh, you know, w- with this, you know, the, the, the rehearsal kind of framework for it, I think manages to bring out uh, both sides of that mm-hmm. equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, the other film of this sort of, trinity of her early work that was so well regarded is safe from 1995 this is the first time she's worked with todd haynes who she went on to work with uh, a couple more times and far from heaven and hopefully in a film that we'll we'll talk a little bit about later um which is wonderstruck um but uh safe is this really chilling creepy film with more in the central 
uh, role. It's 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 sort of a two-parter in some ways. It starts with Moore playing, she's Carol White, a very bland California housewife, a woman with no interests, basically, or no personality that really manifests. She's married to uh, Xander Berkeley, who's kind of perennial douchebag. Like, that's a guy, he just, he never <laughs> seemed to play a decent fellow. But anyway, um, she starts to suddenly experience environmental sensitivity and illness, and it's severe enough that she takes, she decides to leave her life, and she goes to a retreat in New Mexico, where she seeks some kind of safety from a world gone insane, but she doesn't find it. And the second part of the film becomes this sort of dark satire on these kinds of therapy operations. You know, you're it, 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 it's a really strange film because in some ways it is taking a shot it's it's a horror movie about you know the mysteries of chemical sensitivity but in other ways it's about how there is absolutely no safe to be found because the the operations that are set up to help you know just could be a lot of uh uh you know crap um you know and and her her character just becomes more and more sick as she goes along and it's uh it certainly just stays like a it's that there's visuals, especially in that second part of a, of a, of of this person walking through, covered from head to toe in in material, uh, in clothes, and a like a balaclava in the desert. That is is such a creepy uh, image that it's. I think it was on the poster. Yeah, the it's, it's on originally. the poster for sure. Yeah, and it's just terrifying. And there's there's this is a film that remains terrifying to this day. Well, I have a I have a real tight connection to this film because I at the time that I saw this movie. Uh, I had been working. Um, I had actually developed on environmental illness myself. I I had uh, I was a non-smoker, and I started working in a workplace where you could still smoke in the workplace, and everybody smoked. So you know, I was working in a radio newsroom where there was just a yellow haze in the air at all times, and and uh, you know, and I developed asthma, and then uh, we moved into a new building where you weren't allowed to smoke, but because it was brand new, there were carpet glue fumes, there were paint fumes, they were drilling into the concrete floor in the basement so there was particles of dust in the air even though everything was there was supposed to be filtered and it was supposed to be a you know like a hermetically sealed building as it were with an air exchange unit um you know i was i i really i developed asthma i had this dust and smoke sensitivity that thankfully i do not deal with today but watching this movie at that time was a little chilling wow because yeah, uh, you know I, but at least i could point to a cause you know, I said, well, you know, I was working amongst all these smokers and I was a non-smoker. So, you know, naturally I developed this, this issue. And then uh, from the secondhand smoke and then there are all these kind of chemical fumes in the new building because, of course, it's just off-gassing paint and, you know, drywall and carpet glue and, well, new carpet, I guess, even gives off something and, you know, everything. So um, it just went from one bad environment to, to another, um, you know, especially with a already compromised system. So uh, I was pretty sympathetic to this film and it, it felt more like a horror story for me uh, at the time that it came out. And I really, I really felt for uh, uh, Moore's character's uh, dilemma because she doesn't understand what's happening to her. At least I had an understanding of it. And I tried to think, well, imagine if this was happening, and I didn't know why it was happening and that how truly terrifying that would be. So that film had kind of a, almost like a 3d kind of effect on me. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, and, and the film is, it, you know, I mean, it's, it, Haynes has a wicked wit that may, maybe doesn't exist so much in his later films, but if you look at his earlier work, like Poison and certainly the, the Karen Carpenter story where he right. retold her story with Barbie dolls. Um, you know, I, I, I remember that was banned because of a lawsuit, but I imagine these days it's out there somewhere. Um, but but uh, here, the, there's still a bit of that satiric edge, but it's played so chillingly that you have to kind of dig a little bit to find it. But, you know, the, the, there's, you know, just... 
hairspray and deodorant and hair products when she's getting a perm, like, and 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 her fluctuating diet. You know, I'm just going to eat nothing but fruit from here on in. And it's like, well, that's going to cause some problems. And you know, just about how we're living this life out of balance and then introducing all these foreign elements into it is is going to wreak havoc on on your system. And and especially in a city like L.A. where you throw in all the all the car fumes and all that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, it basically took whatever I was going through and took it to the nth degree. And, and you know, her character here is is so different from the other characters in, in the films I'd seen up to that point, you know, where she's very confident and, um, you know, creative and expressive. And here she's kind of mousy and, and you know, she's a homemaker whose who social life is other homemakers. There's a great scene at a, I guess, at a, like a baby shower. And they've all got the same, basically the same dress on, just slightly, you know, different colors or whatever, different shades of pastel or what have you. And they all have the same haircut and, you know, they all basically live the same, the exact same life, you know, to one degree or another. And, and uh, you know, so th- there's some chilling stuff and some some very dark, funny stuff happening in this film, but it's just not uh, totally in your face. You have to kind of take it as Haynes delivers it. And it's... Uh, it's still an amazing film today, although you know, obviously the hairstyles and the clothing styles are, seem very, you know, 25 years ago. <laughs> well, let's look at some of uh, Julianne Moore's work abroad, shall we? Uh, a film that uh, I just watched this morning, actually, for the first time. I, I can't believe it's taken me this long to get around to it. Uh, is uh, an adaptation of a, of a well-known story by Graham Greene called The End of the Affair. And it's, uh, it's based on a novel that's very... Th- thinly veiled on, I think, a true life story about something that Green went through. Rafe Fiennes plays a novelist, a British novelist during the Second World War, who's very much like Green. In fact, they even go to see a movie uh, based on one of his books, and he complains about it, about how they changed everything. And, <laughs> and that, that, you know, that's a very Graham Green thing, because he was, I don't think he was very charitable about the movies that they based on, uh, they made out of his works. And, um, and uh, Julianne Moore is uh, the wife of a civil servant, very stuffy, uh, Stephen Ray. Uh, she's Sarah Miles. He's uh, Henry Miles. And, of course, with the ramp up of the war, he's never home. He's too busy, you know, down in the bunker with Churchill or whatever he's doing um, in the civil service. So she's got a lot of time on her hands. And, uh, of course, Ray Fiennes is uh, Maurice Bendix, the writer and uh you know he's a writer, so of course he's got all the time in the world, and, uh, and naturally uh, they're uh, attracted to one another, and the affair starts up. But there are a lot of complications along the way, and she's very conflicted. Um, but then again, not conflicted. It's it's uh, you know it's a very and a very adult romance story. Um, obviously, Graham Greene's a master storyteller, and I'm guessing Neil Jordan, who also worked on the screenplay. Um, you know, had a real fondness for the material and a real desire to to do uh, do it justice. Yeah, yeah. I wondered actually, Stephen, if you had seen the. There's another version of this. Uh, this is the second adaptation yes. of the book. There's the one from '55 with Deborah Carr and Van Johnson, John Mills, and Peter Cushing. That strikes me as a movie you must have seen. I have not seen it. Ah, I, I'm surprised. I think it has turned up on TCM, and now that I've seen the most recent version, I feel like I need to go back. Obviously, it's going to be. You know, not quite as explicit about the affair part as this film is, but uh, but that's a, that's a pretty great cast. Oh, I'm not the biggest Van Johnson fan in, in the world, so I'm. Are there any really big Van Johnson fans <laughs> in the world? Van Johnson, um, <laughs> one I, would presume, he's a pretty big fan. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious to see how he, especially being uh, you know an American in this very British kind of story, because of course there's that British reserve that comes into play. Um, 
and uh, you know where it's like you know Stephen Ray and and Ray finds uh, Ray kind of knows what's going on, but he doesn't want to think about it basically, and he kind of knows he, he's very aware of his own shortcomings, and and Ray finds sort of feels guilty for taking advantage, but but not too guilty. Yeah. And and, uh, and Julianne Moore's character Sarah Miles, she feels like she has the best of both worlds, where she. She's got the comfortable, supportive, loving husband at home, uh, and then she's got this kind of handsome, rakish lover who, um, you know, is dynamic and and uh, you know fulfills all those desires. And she can just kind of keep the balance between the two. She has the perfect life in a way, um, but of course, it's never that tidy, and um, the war complicates things. Even at the same time, while it's uh, enabling things, uh, in fact, at one point she kind of, when the war ends, she kind of, she says she kind of misses it, yeah. Because of course it, it enabled a certain, while there were certain restrictions, you know, with the the blitz and everything, there was also a certain freedom uh, that that came with it. You know, that, that there was a certain uh, morals kind of went out the window when you think you might get, you know hit by a v2 any day yeah. now kind of thing so yeah. so it's a i love that 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 balance of uh, of flavors in this film as it kind of goes back and forth um you know between the marriage and the affair and you know which one's going to win out in the end and and you know that it's not just a like you know i know she's cheating so i'm going to divorce her it's never quite that simple uh you know when people are that emotionally involved and then it's kind of just as a weird side note of course you've got ray fines who's uh of course uh he who shall not be named from the Harry Potter films, and then he's facing off against Jason Isaacs, right? Who's, uh, of course, one of his uh, acolytes, um, Malfoy. Yeah, the, there's a in, strange Harry Potter Harry po- connection. So here. there's that weird Harry Potter, and I can't remember if Ian Hart. I don't. Is, is oh in the yeah, Harry- I think he is. He I is. Fe- I think early on, one of the early films. I'm. I, I feel like remember. he does turn up. At th- yeah. I mean, every British actor in the world turns up at some point in, in the Harry Potter, Harry Potter films. Yeah. It seems, but uh, um, you know, Ian Hart is wonderful as the private eye who's. Initially hired by Fine's character, uh, the writer Maurice, on behalf of the husband who suspects something is up, and then Fine's says, "Oh, I'll I'll do it as a jealous lover, and I'll hire the detective." I mean, it's it's a brilliant ploy, and it 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 keeps kind of working one way and then working the other. And Ian Hart is wonderful as this kind of hapless detective who's not sure who he's working for. Yeah, so, which, and he's which, got his son working for him. Yeah. <laughs> so the the. You know, there's humor there, uh, you know, and I think that's why I enjoyed this film so much. But aside from the rich historical setting and and the real emotional commitment by the actors to the material, uh, there's also a fair bit of humor in it as well. And and Fines, of course, it's one of his best performances, I think. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, what really grabbed me about the film is that the structure is so unusual. You keep flashing back to the war, and then we're two years later, we're post-war, and Fines is still heartbroken over the fact that the affair ended, so now he wants, in some ways, he's still jealous, and he thinks that she's having another affair with another guy, so he teams up with the husband, the spurned husband. Yeah, it's, it's pretty complex stuff, and even though it's traditional in some ways and very literary. You hear voiceovers. Fine's voiceover is, plays a big part until in the third act, suddenly we get Julianne Moore's character's voiceover. So we start to hear things from her perspective, uh, what happened and her her seeing the way things are. And, and that clarifies everything for both us as an audience and for Fine's. Um, yeah, it's, it's a terrific, it's a terrific film. And I hope that people seek it out. Now, 
Um, I think, you know, as our time is running short, we have, there's so many movies we could talk about with Julianne Moore's career. I mean, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, um, you know, she does great comedy as we all learned in uh, The Big Lebowski. Uh, but we'll save that for our inevitable um, Coen Brothers conversation. Um, <laughs> and also Paul Thomas Anderson. I don't think we've yeah. done a PTA film. So. Yeah, we, and, we need or, to talk. episode. And, I, I don't know. I, I think he's working on something as we speak. So yeah. hopefully that's something we can do down the road as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, we did watch Chloe from yeah. 2010, which... Was, yeah, it dovetails nicely with End of the Affair, actually. It does, yeah. Con- considering how people are working at cross purposes. Um, for sure, yeah. For this, romantic reasons. This is an Adam McGoin film, and it was not well received upon its arrival, but I actually liked a lot of the movie, not all of it. I, I had trouble, some trouble with the ending, which I guess we won't give away, but I felt like it just became too much of a, of a standard thriller in a way by the end that I didn't quite buy. But up to that point, it was really interesting. It's about a, uh, a woman who uh, sort of the repressed lives of Torontonians sort of <laughs> going and revisiting his exotica territory. Uh, it adapts a, a 20, 2003 French film, uh, Natalie. Um, but uh, yeah, Julianne Moore plays Catherine, who's a gynecologist who suspects her husband, David, played by Liam Neeson, of indiscretion. So she hires a professional escort, Chloe, um, Amanda Seyfried, to test his, his fidelity. Uh, but then there's an unexpected connection between the two women. And that's where the story really fi- finds its heat, um, that it's it's about their relationship. That's the main sort of character relationship. And this is a film that has, you know, Hitchcock um, uh, uh, echoes, which I really liked. But I think aside from the performances, which are A+, what I really loved about the film is how recognizable Toronto is. It, Toronto is not a, a city that offers a lot of, that stands for itself very often. And in this case, it's cosmopolitan, it's sensual, it's kind of remote. Um, the lighting is gorgeous. The locations are perfect and uh it just is it is what it is and i i i really liked it i was surprised yeah i was surprised too i mean considering how this you know some agoyan films of course stay in our memory things like uh uh you know like you mentioned exotica and um the <laughs> the school bus movie now for the Oh, no, I've forgotten the title. The Sweetest... Uh, the Sweet Hereafter. Uh, the Sweet Hereafter. Uh, you know, these films are, have kind of gone on to become Canadian classics. But, um, you know, Felicia's Journey, I think, was one that I was quite fond of uh, with with a, with a great, um, you know, performance by... Uh, Is it Bob Hoskins? Bob Hoskins. Yes. And my brain is going... I, I, <laughs> Sunday morning. I'm, I'm working on not a lot of sleep here, folks, today. <laughs> Sunday morning uh, fogginess. But uh, the... Uh, you know, the, the later part of his career gets a little more hit and miss with, uh, you know, some films just flat out not very good, not very well received. And and this is one that that I don't even know if it was received, let alone well or good. I mean, it, it's a it's a title that, you know, I found, it's on Netflix, by the way, if you want to see it. Uh, and I, I recommend checking it out because it's also like a rare chance to see a decent dramatic Liam Neeson part where he's not, you know, killing people with a snowplow or <laughs> chasing kidnappers across Istanbul or whatever. Like it's, it's, it's a rare dramatic turn for him, you know, and you forget, oh yeah, he's, he's a really good actor. He's not just, you know, out for vengeance all the time. And, uh, and, and the tricky balance between the, the three main characters and then the, the, the couple's son gets thrown into the mix and, 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 uh, adds another layer of complication, uh, later in the film. And, and, uh, I liked how it kind of kept throwing stuff at you and, 
and uh, and and some of it keeps you guessing. And I know, yeah, the the ending uh, is is it doesn't quite stick the landing. It's it's certainly not a four star film by any means. But but I liked Moore's performance as this woman trying to get to the truth of the matter, even as her own truth is rapidly shifting. And then of course Chloe turns out to be kind of an unreliable narrator. She's she's making stuff up and to to kind of string uh, Moore along. And uh, you know we. We we're wondering how much of what we know is true and not true, and 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 that's that's where Agoyan really kind of works well, you know, when when things aren't what they seem, or maybe are more than what they seem, and and uh, and it's 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 briskly told. The film kind of zips along uh, at a, at a good pace. It's 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 uh, well put together, and I, I think it deserves to see, uh, yeah, it deserves to be a little bit better known than it is. Yeah, no, I would agree on that. Uh, so, gosh, what else should we talk about here? Well, We're getting close yeah, to Yeah, let's just dip end. into Wonderstruck because sure. uh, it's, a, it's a more recent film and it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, I think it showed up here in theaters for like a week and then it was gone. And it's a shame because it would have been nice. It is a very cinematic film, very, you know, very uh, lovingly put together as, as, you know, Haynes has become a, a kind of a visual master far from home, which we're. I guess we're not going to have time to talk about, but it's a kind of a, his tribute to the Douglas Cirque melodramas of the 1950s. Um, and he kind of, you know, in far from home, which I highly recommend, it's a wonderful film. And, uh, you know, um, you know, Moore has a friendship with, with a black man in the middle of the fifties and the dawn of civil rights when it's completely misinterpreted and, and gets taken to extremes. And, and, uh, but it has that color scheme of the Cirque films. It's a gorgeous, lush film to watch. And, and Wonderstruck has some of that as well. One, one it's two parallel stories. One's in the seventies in, in the kind of 70s colors uh and then the the other story takes place in uh, 1920s black and white and it basically uh, we have a pair of deaf children on their own in new york city kind of follow you know pursuing a a parent or a parental figure um and uh, it's just wonderful watching how these films kind of line up over the course uh of a of a of a pretty fun and kind of child's adventure in New York kind of storyline. Yeah, oh for sure. I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed the film, probably because the reviews for it were middling. I remember when it came out and so uh when I missed it in cinemas I was like, "Oh, that's too bad," but I heard it wasn't as awesome as as it turned out to be. And you know, the thing about the film I really enjoyed is it actually reminded me of Jean-Marc Vallée's Café de Flore uh or Flore, I should say, oh, yeah. uh, from 2011, you know, there's like this this double storyline, these parallel stories at different time periods. And, uh, and uh, Cafe de Flora was one of my favorite films that year. So, um, but it, it, this, and that's, that's no, so the fact that Wonderstruck reminded me that of that in a, in a positive way, really, really kind of grabbed me. Um, and there's this thread of strange, almost fairy tale whimsy. Like this is a, a children's story, uh, with the prominent musical choices, which I really, all of which I think kept me guessing right to the end of the film and how it all will come together. I, I don't want to say too much about the plot. Cause I think a lot of the pleasure of the film comes from discovering what is going on and how these two storylines are connected. And in fact, they are very much connected as you find out in the end, but the child actors are terrific. The sense of location is amazing. He, he very, um, uh, Haynes very well recreates like, uh, New York in the, in the twenties. I mean, not that I was there, but I just feel like, Oh yeah, I'm really getting a sense of it. Plus New York in the seventies. Um, oh, yeah. the street scenes are, are Times Square, 42nd street griminess. Yeah. And... Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. Um, I mean, there are a few contrivances I think in the plot that are a little hard to swallow, but overall I felt the, the heart 
the the heartwarming aspect of the film was so pervasive that I knew that nothing too terribly bad were gonna was gonna happen to these characters that they would be supported and there would be a really anyway I, I found it kind of enthralling and um, yeah I think um, I think for for more fans she's she's a character that is very much a supporting role in this but she's so amazing she actually has a dual role in yes. this which I I really liked which is interesting because she's done a number of dual roles recently she was in Suburbicon where she played two different characters yes, twin sisters yeah yeah and Suburbicon is not a movie I'd necessarily recommend I thought that was a bit of a bit of a, a dud but uh, I think you had a similar experience but but Wonderstruck I really would recommend yeah uh, well you know obviously more is a her character is a, crucial to the story or stories, both of them. And she's a silent film star in the black and white twenties. Uh, uh, although it's a film, although and it's interesting, of course, that the 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 deaf girl in the in the black and white story. Uh, of course, she loves going to the silent movies, and she goes to the movies. And as she's coming out, they're just unloading the sound equipment for the Vitaphone sound process, and that talking pictures are arriving just as she's leaving this late period silent melodrama, kind of inspired by. Um, the Wind, one of the great late silent films, and uh, you know, so so that's an, an interesting little twist. That, you know, the, the thought that movies were silent movies got to this p- pinnacle of being really great works of art, and then sound came in and ruined everything because <laughs> they, you know, technically they were kind of taking a step back because they couldn't move the camera and so on. But um, the, and and then of course later in the film, she's this mysterious woman that we see at the museum. When uh, Walter, the young boy, is is on a tear around New York, I guess the sticking point for a lot of people was they couldn't understand why Michelle Williams, who is in the film briefly as Walter's mother, um, in basically in flashback, uh, you know, would never tell him about his who his real father was, and that's uh-huh. the journey that he goes on to discover in New York City. He has a couple of faint clues to to try and track down his dad, and uh, and she won't tell him who he was, and, and that's. But it's never made clear why that is. She just maybe feels he's not ready to hear it, or you know, maybe she's too sad to talk about it, or she doesn't. Maybe she doesn't want him to know that you know he was born out of wedlock. I, it's it remains a mystery, and that's that's a, a thing that some people had a hard time getting around. But it's it's a pretty minor point overall that 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 shouldn't hinder your enjoyment of the film. No, I agree. It is a it is a wonderful film. Seek it out, and and though there's there's uh yeah, I would say there are moments of sort of plot. Like I said, I guess contrivances, but and that's one of them that you brought up. But uh, but I think it's a film that uh, that actually, if people give it a chance, they will appreciate this duality of it, and also just that it's 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 kind of a movie that wants to give you a bit of a hug, and it does it with the gorgeous score and and visuals that uh, that go on for days. <laughs> wraps up our look at the films of Julianne Moore and uh, starting with the new films uh, the re- relatively new films uh, Gloria Bell and Bel Canto Gloria Bel Canto there's a mashup for you um, <laughs> we actually didn't get to Bel Canto no we didn't talk about <laughs> Bel Canto but uh, see it I liked it more than Carson did <laughs> yeah you liked it more than I did <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that it's, 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 a, it's an interesting allegory hostage tale where she plays an opera singer in a visiting a South American country anyway I'll leave it at that but it's it's uh, it, it's it's not a perfect film, but it's it's got a great cast of characters and some some pretty intense drama. Um, my name is Stephen Cook. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ns underscore s c o o k e, and I have a Twitter handle as well. Um, 
and mine is named after my blog, which is Flaw in the Iris. And of course, Lens Me Your Ears has a Twitter handle too, if you'd like to reach out to us that way. And you can find us on Facebook. And if you like the show, you can always support us on our Patreon page. Uh, that's it for us. Thanks again to the folks at CKDU-FM who air us every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. and at the Village Soundcast Network where they put on all the bells and whistles and make us sound so good. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.